Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again and welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. Now the last I heard of misdiagnosis was she was continuing her European tour, having <laughs> having exhausted the delights of London, and she's headed for a well earned break in the Greek islands. That's all right for some. <laughs> Uh, but meantime, I'm delighted to be joined again here in the studio this morning by our other regular panellists, scientists, psychotherapists, Prudence Deer. And morning. Ac- <laughs> Good morning, Prudence, and academic sociologist, master of the radio button, knobs and buttons, panel beater. Panel beater, when were you last in the Greek islands? <laughs> oh, it was a little while ago now. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right for Far something. too long ago. Yes. Uh, well, maybe the little come to for, uh, Prudence. <laughs> well, I've, no, I'm, I'm booked to go in September, actually, so as long as the queues at the airport have gone down by then I might be able to get there. Oh, where are you off to? Oh, I, an island in no. Greece. <laughs> an island. <laughs> One of those unpronounceable ones. Yes. <laughs> well, as far as I can make out, they're all as beautiful as the next one, so have a lovely time. Um, I'm very excited about today's show because we're going to pop the census under the radiotherapy microscope, see what's in the detail and what it means for you, dear listener, and very particularly what our elected leaders will do with the information. Hmm. Well, that's coming up in the second half of the show, and prior to that, I'm even more excited to say that we have here in the studio, live and in person, the rather amazing Martin, Martin Nguyen. Now, why is it amazing? Well, he's not only a full-time anaesthetist, hands-on father of two little ones, but in all that spare time he has, he runs an organisation called Medical Pantry, which donates surplus medical supplies to where they're needed, including recently Ukraine. Wow, how can, how can just introducing someone make me feel simultaneously exhausted and inadequate? <laughs> but before that, we have a dog park shout-out. Goodness, come on! We've got a little, <laughs> got a little terrier this morning. We got a, sounds like a terrier's got hold of someone's trouser leg and won't let go. <laughs> oh yes, here at Triple R, we love all animals from Ivax to axolotls, but you don't see many of those in the park, do you? So dogs, it is. <laughs> today, today it's the turn of the lovely Christine. And her gorgeous oodly something, I'm not quite sure what Max is, but he's an oodle of some kind. And I don't know about you, uh, uh, Prince, because you're in the dog park on a regular basis. One of the things I love about it is you get to meet all these people. and uh, do, you can talk to them. Yeah. And uh, the only excuse you need is they have to be there with the dog, and then you can just talk yep, to anyone. That's all. You just need something on the end of a lead, and <laughs> there you go. It's an instant conversation. <laughs> just something? It doesn't have to be a dog. <laughs> yeah. Well, we haven't seen too many axolotls just yet. But of course, you start off talking about the dogs, you get the dog's name, and eventually, you know each other well enough to get oh, their yeah. name and Christine uh, turns out to be one of your tribe as psychotherapist. Oh, well, there's a few of us around, yeah, 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 working in trauma. Anyway, she was in the park the other day. Lovely to meet you, Christine, and lovely to see Max not bringing the ball back, just as ill-disciplined as my hounds. <laughs> uh, so now let's have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. The news we're going to talk about today is a change that's um, actually really, really important in my view uh, that started on the 1st of July, which is about cervical screening tests. Um, because uh, up until 1st of July, if you wanted a cervical screening test, you really had to go to your doctor. Only a small number of people are eligible for what's called a self-collected sample. But as of a couple of days ago, anyone who wants to get a cervical screening test can have it done as a self-collected sample. So why do you think that's important, Prudence? Ah, oh, well, a number of reasons, but I guess the most important one probably is that not everybody wants to have a doctor or some other medical professional rummaging around in their nether regions, actually, and I think that's a, a, big, a big concern for, for all people with cervixes, some of whom actually may be, for example, transgender, and, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it can be embarrassing, it can be problematic for them, and... Um, being able to do it yourself, I think, is an excellent idea. Yeah, absolutely spot on, I think, Prudence, because the participation rate overall in the screening program is only around about 50%, which is not great uh, for a program that has been absolutely proven to save women's lives. And um, as you appropriately see, there are going to be other groups who are even lower in the participation rates, and transgender people might be one of those. Um, There are also people made with disabilities, people with uh, language issues and cultural reasons why it's less acceptable, as you say, to have someone (laughs) rummaging around. Um, And and also people who have been through traumatic experiences. Absolutely. Uh, And I guess because the technology's changed and and the way that the, the, the tests are actually done now, um, it's presumably a lot easier just to, you know, to to a swab sample and people can do that themselves. Yeah, so one of the reasons it's changed is what we used to do was what's called the pap smear, which involved having to actually visualise the cervix and then get right into the proper areas, which did require a health professional to do it. Now all we're looking for is the presence of the dodgy viruses, the HPV, human papillomavirus, uh, which can be found on a swab and it's interesting that um, just popping a swab into the vaginal area has turned out to be just as effective as a medical professional getting right in, visualising the cervix and taking the swab. Now, of course, if you do a self-collected swab, no-one's actually checking how things look, and sometimes what we see tells us what to do. But in all honesty, in all my decades of taking cervical samples, the number of times what I see has changed the management is pretty, pretty small. Uh, and I'd much rather we had women coming forward and having the test as a self-collected sample than avoiding it because they don't want, as you say, <laughs> a health professional well, yes. rummaging around. That's right. And, and the results of not having the test uh, can be catastrophic, obviously. Yeah, yeah because uh, cervical cancer is still the 14th most common cancer in Australia. And even though we've had the vaccination, Gardasil, which uh, we think is going to protect hugely um, our young women as they grow older, uh, the, the rates of cervical cancer have, have plateaued a bit. They haven't dropped as dramatically as we'd hoped. So hopefully this new self, self-testing system will encourage women, uh, anyone with a cervix, to get out there and have the test done. So the only people who can't have it done, so it's not available for absolutely everyone, if you've had previous cancer or treatment, complicated things like that, you may still need a doctor to do things to you. Otherwise, if you've been hesitant about your cervical screening test, pop down to your um, 
<coughs> excuse me, pop down to your GP or whoever you go to for these things, uh, have a chat about a self-collected sample. It means you can do it in the privacy um, without the doctor having to be involved. Dr Nicky has said uh, pop down to your GP or whoever you see. What, so there are alternatives to GPs? Uh, yes, so um, I mean, gynaecologists do this as well. Um, do you need a referral? planning clinics? No, no. Well, you might if it's a gynaecologist. Yeah. Um, but um, there'll, there'll be health centres, um, particularly perhaps in regional and rural communities where you don't need an appointment with the doctor. Uh, but you will need to have a chat with the pathology service because it's a, it's a particular swab. Um, so uh, it's a brand new system. It's only just started, but people need to know it. And if people are unsure, we start at the age of 25. So anyone who's sexually active, uh, 25 is when we start. Uh, right up to the age of 75. <laughs> not not because we assume people stop being sexually active at 75, just because you don't need to test after that. Just Prince. getting started. <laughs> <laughs> Prince, sorry, you were going to say something. Uh, no, well, no, I was just thinking, well, I guess more recently as well, people are very um, well-versed now in self-swabbing, like you know, with rats and everything else, so presumably it's a pretty similar sort of thing, is it? You just get a, a little little cotton ball on the end of a stick. Is yeah, it? just put it somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, but that's actually a really good point, and I think one of the points that's been made about the whole COVID pandemic is that our health literacy has increased. Um, so you're quite right, people are now familiar with swabs and popping them in nose or throat, and so here's the same sort of idea, same sort of cotton ball, uh, cotton swab, just elsewhere. Uh, all right, well, that's uh, excellent. Now, uh, coming up shortly is our first guest, Dr. Marty Nguyen. He'll be with us in just a minute. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. It's my enormous pleasure to be able to introduce to listeners Dr. Marty Nguyen, who is a health professional and the founder of Medical Pantry. So let's find out all about it. Marty, welcome to the studio. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's so lovely that you could come in. Before we even talk about Medical Pantry, just tell us who you are, what you do, what your professional background is. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm an anaesthetist at, um, at Western Health, um, full-time there, and um, also um, a dad of two as well, <laughs> so it's a lot of work. Uh, which is more stressful? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely being a dad. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> being a full-time anaesthetist, having a couple of kids at home, obviously you've got spare time oozing out of your ears, so you decided to do something else as well. Tell us about Medical Pantry. Yeah, so Medical Pantry, um, you know, solves um, a few problems with healthcare. So, um, you know, help, help, we're really lucky in Australia to have a top-class healthcare system, but it also generates a lot of waste. Mm -hmm. And um, similarly, well, in contrast to that, you know, overseas, in other parts of the world, you know, people just don't have access to healthcare supplies. So, you know, we're, we're kind of joining the dots of, of, of two problems. And um, so we take surplus supplies from the healthcare system here, and then we find partners to, to help us distribute medical supplies um, to disadvantaged communities all over the globe. And when you say medical supplies, what are we talking about? Are we talking about buckets full of old penicillin that's gone past its use-by date? What are we talking? Yeah, so we don't, we don't do medications, but, um, but we do uh, uh, consumables um, and, and also uh, equipment as well. So, and what does consumable mean in the medical supplies <laughs> world? It sounds sandwich. like something you'd have for your dessert. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, um, yeah, so things like gauze, syringes, um, and then consumables for, um, for, for specialist surgeries as well. So um, 
uh, ports and and um, and diathermies that come with uh, surgical um, equipment. So it's not obvious to me as a health professional why you've got lots of gauze and ports and syringes and needles lying around that you don't need. What's it, what's going on here? Um, well, we well because um, healthcare is on demand, and so we do need to stock up um, and 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 stockpile. So um, with that comes excess, and that surplus, um, you know, if we don't use it, if um, there's multiple reasons why we healthcare might end up throwing out um, medical supplies, um, but um, but we we just have a lot. But um, if, for instance, something like a drape, a surgical sheet, that sort of thing, surely it doesn't have a use-by date. I mean, if you've got excess on Monday, surely you can just use it the following week. Um, yeah, so healthcare supplies get um, get allocated to patients per procedure, and if it doesn't get used, it gets thrown out. What? If it, even if it's perfectly okay? Um, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, but we try we try and match things as best that we can in healthcare, but. You know, because we just don't know what's going to happen during an operation, for example, and so we're prepared for everything that can occur, and sometimes um, that leads to excess. Right. Okay. Well, it sounds like we should be sending some administrators around to tidy up that process, but it gives us a few bits of excess to do something useful with. So, tell me what you do with all this excess that we're just squandering in our hospital system. Yes. So um, we've got two 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 broad programs. So one is for humanitarian aid. And then the other ones for animals uh, for veterinary care, and so um, we we collect all these supplies and and with the help of our volunteer volunteers we sort and categorise all of this, and then uh, then we offer it to our partners, and so they're able to pick and choose what supplies that they need to care for their communities. So you mentioned vets and other people in need. Let's talk about the sort of human side of it first. Who's actually getting these supplies? Um, so our closest neighbours um, uh, is at the Pacific Islands. So we end up, so we work with the Catalyst Foundation and Reach for the Future Foundation, for example, and they both operate in Fiji. And so uh, we, we'll send them a list of supplies that we have in our warehouse every month, and then they can pick and choose exactly what they need, and then they transport it over to Fiji. Okay. And um, who are the people who actually do all the transporting and logistics about it? You surely don't have a bunch of trucks and stuff at your disposal, do you? No, so that, that's, that's where we work with our partners. So they, they have logistical um, capabilities and they also understand the customs um, and, and also the Ministry of Health as well. So um, they, they, we partner with them to actually move products overseas. And all that's expensive, who pays? Yes, yeah, so our partners pay. So, um, and sometimes we get a bit of help from 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 the government as well. So either the ministry um, of the country that we that we're delivering supplies to, and sometimes it's Australian aid. Okay. I mean, I've, and I've heard sometimes that, uh, particularly sometimes with medication that's redistributed, and I, I understand you're not doing that, um, but there's a concern sometimes about sort of medical paternalism. We say, oh, we've got this old stuff that's out past its use by date. It's a bit of a junk from our point of view, but we'll just turf it off to the third world and feel like we're doing good. How, how would you answer that one? Yeah, so, um, so the medical pantry works a bit differently in, in the fact that we don't make those decisions about what goes overseas. And so we try and, um, we try and do our best to provide information to communities um, about um, you know, where the products come from, its expiry date, its reference numbers, um, any product recalls. Um, and so what happens there is that the communities, so the, the doctors and the nurses, um, in that community pick and choose exactly what they want. So they make 
they make that decision. So we don't make any decisions about what goes overseas. Okay, because so they can say, well, that's only three months past its use by date. We know it's perfectly okay, so we're happy to have that. That's right. Um, but something else, it might say, nah, not for me. That's right. So you've mentioned Fiji, but I think you've also um, distributed to Ukraine, haven't you? Yes, we have. So, um, yeah, so we, we worked with um, a Ukrainian community here, or they reached out to us and, and um, they asked for a lot of basic medical supplies for trauma, and we just happened to have a lot at the time. So um, they just came to our warehouse, a whole lot of their volunteers actually came, and then they, they took what supplies that they needed. Fantastic. Um, so Fiji, Ukraine, anywhere else that you can tell us about that these have gone? <laughs> yeah, so our, our biggest our, our biggest donation was actually to in India, so during the second wave. Um, so we, we'd been contacted by a, a manufacturer who, who had 60 million N95 masks, um, which they couldn't sell. And, um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like 60 million N95 masks. Yeah, it was quite a lot. A few spares, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and, and so instead of sending it to landfill, um, they, were, they were generously gave it to us, and then we, we ended up giving it all to India during the second wave. And uh, what I don't, again, I still don't quite understand, if you've got 60 million N95 masks, uh, surely someone's going to use them at some point. Again, I mean, these things must have a use-by date of many years, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah, um, I think I think they they weren't they were brand new and still within date. So, so I, I can't recall what the date was, but I remember it was um, quite long. I suppose I'm just wondering, thinking of things like that as an example, um, how do you kind of quality assure these are not being dumped? You know, the, like manufacturers are not dumping a load of surplus stuff that they couldn't be actually selling somewhere else. Do you have any way of actually being able to say, "Oh, yeah, this is this is good quality stuff"? Yeah. So they they actually sent us um, they actually send us their um, um, their A tag, you know, their TGA um, uh, certificates, um, and they provide us that information. We we actually provide that to uh, the communities as well, um, so they can pick and choose. And take me back. When does it? When did you found this company? Um, yeah, so it was founded uh, three years ago, but it's a project that I've been working on for about nine years. Nine years? So you, you must have been a babe in arms at that stage. You look, you look <laughs> incredibly young now for, for a qualified anaesthetist. No, I've, I've got plenty of white hair. <laughs> yeah, but you've still got hair. Yeah, um, yeah so, um, so at the time, I, I was an I was was anaesthetic registrar. And, um, now, anaesthetic registrars do not have time for <laughs> setting up charitable organisations. No, it wasn't a charity back then. It was just an idea. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we'd done a waste audit at, um, at the hospital with um, Dr. Forbes McGain. And um, we, we noticed that uh, of all the waste that was coming from theatre, about, you know, about one third was unopened. Um, and so, um, you know, there was this massive amount of, of, of good quality waste there. Marty, quick question. Of that. I'm going to be the. Um, can I take the role of the hospital bean counter for a second? <laughs> here we go. And uh, they're, they're they're hearing of your good work, but they're also probably thinking, okay, so now we've got data on how much uh, stock is not being used. There's a cost cutting opportunity for the hospital. Are you getting any of that um, coming your way? Yes, uh, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's that's one of the great things about what we're doing at the medical pantry is that you know, uh, prior to prior to us existing, we never looked at this waste, and so now it's um, you know the hospitals that are giving to us are actually seeing that actually we could probably do better, um, and so really medical pantry shouldn't exist. So um, <laughs> there shouldn't be any waste, right. and we shouldn't have any healthcare inequality. 
in this world. But um, while there is a problem, then we, we think we can help. Yeah. So I just want to take you through. So you had the idea nine years ago as an anaesthetic registrar, but somehow the idea transformed into a real entity. Tell me about that process. Yeah, so it went through multiple iterations through the years. And so, um, you know, I worked with um, Melbourne University um, with their... Um, with the medical students and the nursing students to, to find communities overseas. Um, that was a really intensive uh, resource draining process. Um, and then it wasn't until about four years ago where um, I did the company director's course which got me thinking about organisations. And... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just going to check a company director's course into being an anaesthetist. And I imagine by this time, four years ago, we're talking about embarking on parenting as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah OK. Do something to fill your time. Yeah, OK, so company director's course. And then... Yeah, um, and yeah so, um, so then I just started talking to more people about, you know, would you like to join... Um, and then we applied for a grant, so it was a state government community grant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, we got it uh, at the time. It was through um, community voting, and so there was a lot of buy-in from the community about um, about what we were trying to do, and that that gave us the funding to get started. And so the medical pantry itself was started about three years ago. You said that's right. And it must need at least some money to keep it going. What's your funding stream for medical pantry? Yes, at the moment we're completely donation-based. So, you know, we're looking to the community to help support us. Um, At the moment we're 100% volunteer run and so our only real expense is uh, the warehouse. Right. And and that's, that's also our biggest limiting factor as well. What storage? Storage. Wow! Well, I got so much mm. stuff. Yep, it's uh, packed to the roof. Um, we recently got uh, the Honda Foundation recently um, donated a, a forklift, so we're now able to stack things. <laughs> stack even higher. <laughs> yeah, so um, so that's you know that's increased our operations. Um, yeah. It's been amazing. I think you need my wife. She's very good at filling cupboards with absolutely everything and then finding space for even... Sorry, Paddle that you, you can say. No, 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 no nothing um, urgent. I was um, So now with that much stock in holding, is that you must have somebody who's trying to keep an audit of it, just so you know what you've got available. Have you got systems in place to manage all of that? Yeah, so we've, um, we've got some software that helps us sort okay. those suppliers. Mm. Um, at the moment, we're working on um, getting this software program which helps us sort to actually connect to a store yeah, right. and so with this online store it'll be like ebay so communities can come online and see what we have exactly in the warehouse and then pick and choose what they need but it's a work in progress and can i ask roughly how many hours a week of your time is spent dealing with medical pantry at the moment oh, i don't really count yeah most of the time <laughs> it's just putting out fires but right. um you know we're just just, just trying to what fix are, problems what are the biggest challenges well at the moment it's funding Okay. Yeah, so we, we're pretty close to zero in our bank account. Um, we're really fortunate with, with our warehouse, so the, the owner of the warehouse is um, um, giving us a massive discount for us to be there. Um, but, um, but, yeah, that's... Discount still needs to be paid. That's right. Well, we'll come on to that in just a second, because I want to, again, backtrack. We talked about the sort of human side of where some of this um, extra supply... Are, are any of the excess supplies being donated within Australia, or is it all overseas? So within Australia, it's mainly to, to help help animals. Yeah, so tell us about that. Yeah, so... Um, this, is, this is for the dog park listeners. So they'll be delighted with this being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, at the moment, we work with two organisations, Warriors for Wildlife and the mm-hmm. Animal Rescue Collective. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're quite two large organisations that, that, um, that uh, support 
a lot of refuges and and um, and rescues, and so we re- really rely on them. Um, so we this open door kind of process. But, but there. what do they need from a, a hospital operating theatre? Uh, so they need really basic supplies. So a lot of a lot of the, the injured animals um, uh, results of burns and 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 road. Okay, so things. dressings that sort of stuff. That's right. Wow. That's right. Okay. And and is that all around Australia? Or where do they get delivered? Yeah, it's all around Australia. Yeah. So the Animal Rescue Collective um, have I think about forty depots throughout Australia, and so whenever we get big orders for syringes, for example. Um, we're able to distribute it to them. They distribute it to the hundreds of, of rescues that they support. That's incredible. And I know you don't do medications. Oh, sorry, Prudence. No, no, <laughs> you carry on. I'll come in there. Okay, because I know you don't do medications, but it's always interested me that um, every health practitioner I know has a cupboard full of medications that are well past their use-by date, knowing full well that n- n- pretty much all of those are absolutely fine to use. Um, are there organisations like Medical Pantry which are um, also stopping uh, medications being chucked out and wasted, do you know? Uh, the only one I know of is insulin for life. Okay. Um, so they, um, yeah, they, they take insulin, they, they keep it overseas, as, uh, along with, um, you know, glucose monitors and, and okay. strips and things. All right, that's good to hear, Prudence. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So you, as a charity, you're pretty much driven by volunteers, is that right? So what sort of skills and things do people who volunteer bring into your organisation? Yeah, so the, the day-to-day volunteering is mainly sorting and preparing supplies, so sorting incoming donations from hospitals and then preparing uh, donations to, to, to go out to our communities. Yeah. So does and that require sort of knowledge of, like, I know what a different type of piece of equipment is or, a, you know, the different types of dressings? Yeah, so we've, we've set up the system to, to allow for, for, for just general... Um, volunteers and then more specialised volunteers like okay. nurses and doctors, and so we've for for we've got what what we call the first sort, and so we've got boxes that just line the room, and on each box is is a product. So it might be yeah. a syringe or a Goodell, and um, it's very much you know match the product to the box and just chuck mm-hmm. it in the boxes. So. And what about the other sorts of side of things like, you know, yeah, the financial management and. Logistics and stuff. Do you have people who are kind of specialists in that? Was that you? Uh, do you do that? Yeah, that's probably mostly me. But you know, I'm open open to more volunteers coming on board. So there are specialised volunteering opportunities as don't, well. We have. Don't tell me you've done an accountancy course in your spare time. No. no. <laughs> um, so if, if people are interested in volunteering, or being part, uh, is there a website or something they can yeah. go to? Yeah. So they can check out medicalpantry.org. Medicalpantry.org, no, no AU? No, no AU. Okay. Um, and are you looking for volunteers at the moment? We are, we are. Excellent. So medicalpantry.org if you want to volunteer. And for those whose wallets are just bursting at the seams and don't know what to do with all that spare cash, are you taking donations? Uh, we certainly are. Oh, and are you tax deductible? We are. Oh, missed it for last tax year, but get in early for this <laughs> new tax year. Where do people go if they want to consider doing that? Yeah, so they can go onto our website, um, medicalpantry.org forward slash donate, or they can send us an email at donate at medicalpantry.org. Donate at medicalpantry.org. Send an email or have a look at the Medical Pantry website. I think that sounds a fantastic place for people to um, think about what their tax deductions will be for the 2022-23 tax year. Um, and finally, just you, Marty, I, um, I was very impressed because not only are you doing all this, but when I tried to speak to you, you were very busy taking the kids to a movie. So you're not neglecting right. the parenting duties. Uh, what was the movie? I've forgotten now. You did tell me. Uh, we watched Minions. M- okay. <laughs> 
fantastic movie to take the kids to. Lots Do you have to have kids, or should the panel Peter looks like he wants to go anyway? Count me in. <laughs> it was good? It was very good. All right, so you're going to recommend Minions to everybody? Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, apart from recommending Minions, we definitely recommend medicalpantry.org. Um, please, please, please have a look at their website. If you've got some spare time, please consider um, helping out. If you've got some spare cash uh, and spare time, consider donating both. Marty, it's been lovely to have you. Thank you so much for coming in. No, thank you for having me. It's been, been great. Thanks, Marty. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Prudence, dear, tell us about census. Yeah, the census. Well, there's a bit of a segue, really, from mentioning things like osteoporosis. So... Well, you might have to think back, I suppose, to the 10th of August 2021, which was census night. So we do that, what, every four years? Um, every four has... years or every five Is years? Every five. Oh, oh God. I'm confused now. <laughs> I'm simply too old to remember. Every five years, is it? Um, and, yeah, look, I mean, uh, we obviously gather a lot of information. And this, this census is now... We're... The reports are now starting to flow out and I had a sort of a bit of a quick dive into an area that I thought would be relevant for many of us here which is about long-term sort of health conditions. Now before you even dive into those I want to ask you a really curly one. Uh, It was August last year, it's July now, 11 months. What on earth takes them so long? It's all on a computer, surely they could churn it out the next day. Well I can give you a few answers to that, I think. Um, okay, so, like, I mean, I've been working in IT for most of my life, actually, before right. I ended up here. So it's your fault. So I think, you know, well, when you look at, um, you know, there's data relating to 25 million people. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of kind of collation. There's a lot of checking. I mean, the, the, the ABS do a lot of work to make sure this information is consistent, accurate. So data, yeah, we have computers, but it does take quite a while, first of all, to just pull it all together and make sure it's clean and consistent. And then some people, like a bunch of statisticians, have to go through all this sort of stuff and validate it all. So I think... And of course, a decent look, chunk of them are actually still hard copy, physical... Yeah, which yeah, presumably absolutely. have to be coded by and some poor student somewhere putting it on a, a computer system. Absolutely, and there's a roadmap. I mean, there's going to be more reports and more detail coming out over the next couple of years. I mean, for example, I've been doing, you know, I've been for the last 20 years, I've been involved in various sorts of cancer type work. And the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which published all those stats about cancer, sometimes those are up four years before we actually get, you know, like now, in 2022, the actuals for a lot of cancer data is still 2018, and the rest is still predicted. So, you know, we're past those dates. It takes a long time to process this information, I'm afraid. Yeah, OK, very fair point, and you're absolutely right, because a lot of the data we deal with in health um, comes out a year, two years, or even more afterwards. So we'll give a big round of applause in that case I to the really census well. people for getting it out in less than 12 months. Yeah. So well done them. OK, now that I've interrupted you, talking about what the content was. Let's go back to that. So what 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 really caught your eye in the data? So first of all, so the Australian population um, on that night, not including visitors and things, is 25.5 million people. So yeah, a lot of information could be gleaned there. Um, The census also took in, you know, a lot of new questions, a lot of new pieces of information were gathered this this, last year. 
um, and particularly about long-term health conditions. And I think there are a couple of things that just like hit me smack in the face when I looked at the data. And the first one was actually the number of people reporting. So long-term health conditions were sort of anything, any sort of condition that basically lasts, is, does or expected to last more than six months and, um, and is probably controlled by medication or other sorts of therapies and included a specific set of things like mental health, um, arthritis, asthma, diabetes, heart disease, they're all kind of listed separately. And these are self-reported? So self-reported. Well, the criterion was that they had been told by a doctor or a health professional that they had this condition. So okay. it's not totally self-diagnosing, right. um, but assuming that people conform to that. Um, anyway, what we 8 million, over 8 million people reported having one or more long-term health conditions like mm. those. And if we look at the breakdowns, you know, mental health was over 2 million. Uh, likewise, actually, asthma and arthritis. You know, so we got huge numbers of people who are, in one way or another, perhaps, you know, their health isn't optimal. So I'm talking about around about a third of the population. 35% yeah, yeah, okay. of our population and it, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just make my glass half full. That does mean that around about two-thirds of the population say, no, actually, my long-term health's pretty good. I don't have a chronic health condition. So let's celebrate that. Absolutely. 15 million <laughs> yeah, seemingly yeah. are quite okay. well at this time. Obviously, you know, we do know that certain you know, conditions have kind of trajectories and that it's not until later in life, for example. So we have a population, you know, that's obviously, you know, is ageing on one level, but then expanding at the lower um, ages as well. So th there are sort of uh, time frames here as well, which I think one of the things that kind of comes out of a census like this is like we can also start to anticipate the sorts of problems that might be occurring in the future and services that we might need. But I was, uh, yeah, look, I mean... It, it sort of uh, the mental health one I think was pretty profound that this included included sort of anxiety and depression so it's a fairly broad ranging one. And what sort of percentage was it in the end for mental health? It's around about ten percent, wasn't it's it? It's getting on for ten percent, isn't yeah. it? Over two million, yeah, which is pretty worrying. And then I just had a, you know it's very interesting to look at a few other things around that sort of data and in particular um, this kind of socioeconomic sort of. Um, alignment. In mm -hmm. other words, there were what looked to me like very big peaks in the graph um, for all of those conditions, especially um, arthritis, diabetes, and so on, where in, where people basically in the lower income groups, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I suppose I'm sort of you know thinking, well, there's a couple of reasons probably for that. One is that if you have a condition, you know, like arthritis or whatever. Um, and a mental health condition, you may not be able to work or work mm -hmm. full-time, um, and you may well be on benefits, which puts people into those sort of lower categories. But it also, I guess, also, you know, questions, um, you know, whether there's other things going on that uh, mean that people don't have sort of sufficient access to services in order to, to deal with some of these conditions. Well, I think when we talk about the chicken and egg question here, I think, that, as I understand it, and this is certainly not my area of expertise, but, but I think that, that, um, that answer is fairly well established, isn't it? That we know that um, uh, social determinants of health um, make a massive difference. It's not just that people who have a chronic illness can't earn an income. We know that if you are socially um, struggling, 
uh, that actually has an impact on your health. Isn't Absolutely. That right? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's, it's hard. You're doing it hard. And I think, you know, that um, uh, as well, it's sort of like, uh, and it's not, I haven't looked into this one yet, but obviously there's a big difference between people in metropolitan versus rural and regional areas where, again, you know, life might be more difficult. Employment opportunities can be more um, uh, challenging. So um, that's certainly something that would be good to explore at a later date. Um, I think one of the things that as well came out for me there is is that just just what two days ago we lost some MBS item numbers around telehealth. Oh. You probably know more about those than me. Oh, again, tell me about access. It. Yes. So people again who are disadvantaged, who've got chronic conditions, they probably need to see their GP more often. How much more difficult is that going to be when we've seen how well that's worked for the last two years? Yes, we've just lost the um, longer uh, telehealth item number for telephone call interaction. We can do it by video, um, which is a lovely idea, but oh my goodness, the struggles we have getting people just to answer a telephone and then speak into the microphone, not be driving the car in the park or whatever with the kids, getting them to do it on video, nigh on it, well, not impossible, but so often it doesn't work. Anyway, that's a (laughs) bugbear. Yeah, but I mean, I think it sort of, I I think it kind of just, it kind of highlights the need for sort of accessible services that in many ways, people with chronic health conditions um, are... Well, you know, they are less able for various reasons. They may not have the money, they may not have the resources, they may not have the phone, they may not be able to drive to go and see um, a doctor or other sorts of health professional. Um, uh, panel Peter, I can see you itching to, to, to this is absolutely your turf. Is. <laughs> Tell me what your take is on what we've said so far. Yeah, it's, it's, really, um, it's really interesting and so many ways to slice and dice it and, and it's great that we're paying attention to the social determinants. A few things come to mind. First of all, just one while you were going through the yeah. stats um, so we don't lose that moment. Um, just talking about the breakdown of the stats. One of the stats that I found most fascinating was um, the stat around not stated, and which was 2 million people. Not stated about health? That, well, they stated that they had their um, um, uh, uh, that they had a condition, right? Uh-huh. But they um, didn't state what it was. Now, and, and good on them, you know, they, they may have had privacy concerns and what have you, but the number is still extraordinary. This puts it in the top five or six of the of the mm-hmm. concerns. So, what do we do with that figure? <laughs> you know, what, 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 yeah, yeah, know. you know what what becomes relevant there. And I think um, uh, there was another uh, that was called. Oh, yeah, and then there was the then there was the collective one. So, anything that wasn't on the list, but people still wanted to yeah, nominate, they did. And that number was huge as well. So, and I think that ended up being about four million people. Now, four million people becomes a very significant number that are just in this kind of mixed bag of lollies allocation over here. And we don't know what what to do with that. So I think this now points to um, what we need to understand about the role, the form and function of a census. It isn't necessarily to tell us um, uh, information about what to um, act on now because of the lag so the 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 specialists working in the various area areas they don't need the census to tell them what the prevalence of any one of these issues is yeah um and so uh, those experts and their respective uh lobby groups are working off the you know the consistent and ongoing progressive research that they're doing monitoring um the people who are dealing with these conditions 
So it's not the function of the census, in a sense, to actually inform um, those experts in those areas. It's great for the general public and an opportunity for many people to get surprised by, you know, the number of people with arthritis or yeah. asthma or something but like you, that. But you're absolutely right. No one suddenly said, oh, mental health yeah, is, is a big right. problem. That's right. I didn't realise it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's only, that's right. I mean, it, it's a snapshot, and in many ways it confirms what we already knew, but I think sometimes the raw numbers just make you sort of pay attention. <laughs> so that's quite sort of valuable. Yeah, but, well, I mean, it's about the forward planning as well, isn't it, I think? So, so, so that brings me to what I suppose is my obvious question, which is, so what do we do with this? So there's an awful lot of information, um, and it's, well, it's interesting to look at, but well, where some, do we go? Some, I mean, some organisations, you know, whether it's uh, parts of government or charities and so on, are utilising this information already. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some, there were some nice examples. Um, Department of Veterans Affairs, for example. There's more questions in this census about people who have served in the Australian uh, Defence Forces. Now, DVA... You know, they have uh, people on their books who they are providing services to, but there's also a large cohort who are not using DVA services, who are ex-service people. And the, 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 uh, the census has kind of been able to identify kind of who they are, where they are, what their ages are, etc. And so, you know, so departments like uh, Veterans Affairs are able to, to look at Australia as a whole and think, well, we're, in the future, we're going to need to provide potentially services across the board in different states or different locations to different sorts of age groups. So I think there's a value in that. So that's, so that's positive. But um, to turn it around the other way, um, and this is purely looking at the census data from a health perspective, mm-hmm. I had a look at the website about their examples of how census data have been used uh, in the health sense. And frankly, I was very disappointed because it seemed a very minimal impact. So there's a whole thing about bipolar disorder, oh, yeah. um, written saying bipolar is very common, it affects young people. Absolutely right, of course, very, very important condition. How have the census data helped? Well, it's told us a bit more about how many young people we have who might be at risk. I think, okay. That doesn't change anything terribly much from my point of view. Um, there was another one which was looking at homelessness and um, what the um, what the numbers of, of homeless people are and so on, which, again, yeah. you think incredibly important. And there was a phrase in there saying the data collected drives political decision-making about policy, <laughs> which in turn drives funding. And I can see penalties are shaking. <laughs> because I love the idea. I mean, that's a sentence written in there. But yeah. does it really drive policy? Policy-making and funding panel data? No. <laughs> That's the short answer. Slightly longer answer is maybe one way that we can think about it. Policy, um, one of the drivers of policy is uh, the concept of evidence. And the other concept that uh, drives policy is the concept of democracy. And democracy will always trump evidence. <laughs> So if the population, if an electorate has a disposition towards a certain issue, even if that issue isn't um, aligned with what the data says, the data won't trump um, the, the, the noise made by an electorate. I, I Just off the top of my head, I think the evidence says wearing masks in public would reduce the spread of COVID, but the public opinion is we're sick of it, we're not going to. Would that be an example? Yeah, um, certainly, um, you know, no politician at the moment is going to um, reinvigorate the idea of mandates, or, you know, widespread mandates. We've still got them on public transport and some shared spaces. But yeah, and, and look but, how, look yeah. we're complying with yeah, that. that's right. You know, so the data is really clear that um, uh, masks are a good idea, but um, 
um, that's not treated as evidence the way that we might think evidence would otherwise inform policy. So, uh, Prudence, uh, um, so I've slightly canned, the, uh, slightly canned the idea that the census is driving changes in health policy and so on. Have you got a different view? Uh, look, I think there's opportunities, put it that way. I mean, it is about information, as we've said, and sort of forward planning, but I take absolutely um, what, you know, PB's saying here as well, in that there's more to those kind of political decision-making processes than just simple raw data. Um, but I think, if nothing else, it informs those who wish to advocate. You know, it gives them a good basis for, um, you know, formulating arguments or strategies that we can be pushing for on the basis of, um, on, you know, some hard data. But I do also think, I mean, I guess there's some questions around, <clears throat> as with any sort of research and data collection, one is, I suppose, I think, have that sort of saying, you know, if you look for it, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, just the way we are categorising and classifying things again, you know, is that reinforcing existing sort of what um, bias rather Can you, than... Give me an example of what you're referring to there. What well, do you I mean? think probably even, you know, even around some of these things like uh, the mental health sort of side of things. I mean, what what constitutes a mental health into a problem or an issue um, as opposed to something that perhaps is just uh, more normal and, and represents the diversity of, of humankind? Yeah. I think it's often phrased as do classifications or categorisation, this applies to research across the board, do they reflect populations or do they create categories of populations themselves you know they, they manifest because you tell them they're different so you do that with race and sexuality and gender and all of these sorts of things and I want to come back to your point, Panel Beater, that around about 4 million people said, yes, I have a chronic health condition, meaning I've had a medical or some health problem lasting more than six months. Around about half of that 4 million said, I'm not going to say what that condition is. Another half said, well, it's not in your list of arthritis, yeah. asthma, mental health and so on. So we've got about 4 million people with other uh, any any best guesses of what we're talking about here? That's a lot of people um, who don't fit the categories or don't want to say. I reckon it might be. I reckon um, off the top of my head, I reckon there's going to be some stuff around aging, just like um, joint pain, like mm -hmm. you know, um, pain that people are living with. Well, might be. I'd better tick that box next time. <laughs> Um, headaches, migraines, um, all of those sorts of things, dental issues, um, or, you know, that kind of thing, eyes. Uh, but that, that, that's a lot of people self-identifying as unwell on mm. a long-term basis. That really surprises me, that figure. And it's that kind of invisibility, then, of those conditions, isn't it? And, I mean, it's like, <clears throat> yeah, there's... Uh, we have heard, you know, we've had people in here talk, talking about the impacts of conditions like endometriosis, for example, which, you know, is, seems to be far more prevalent, prevalent than, you know, you might appear to be and impacts people's ability to, to work, you know, and to have a good life. Likewise, things like uh, bipolar and so on, where people may feel stigmatised about even wanting to acknowledge that they have those conditions. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you know... They become even the census doesn't uncover that information, and it's a. I guess it's a really tricky one because you know, do you want to reveal all? How much do you trust, um, you know, the big brother of the census to capture information which can ultimately be linked right back to you as an individual? 
Um, how, how, how safe do we feel revealing things about ourselves? Well, I personally had no problem at all, but I mean, that's just a personal answer. What about you? Were you concerned about how you filled in the census? Did that bother you? Um, by and large, no, but then they didn't dig too deep into gender identity. So, okay. so from my perspective, yeah, maybe would I have thought about, mm, you know, do I want to say that I'm gender diverse rather than sort of just run of the mill? I don't know. And the question, I think, was male, female or non-binary. Was it? Yeah, was that which really asked? didn't make any, a lot of sense yes. in, in either. If we're going to you know, acknowledge that there is a diversity of gender identities and expression, then we really need to sort of provide the coverage for that rather than some sort of yeah. half-hearted effort, I think. And that really wasn't a very good attempt. Well, we'd better have you advising them in three and a half years' time what the wording should be on the next census. Do you have any... Give me a, a positive takeaway message about the census. Give me something really good that you gleaned from it. Oh, look, um, what did I like about it most? Well, look, I think it has, it's got great... I think it has got some pretty good coverage. I think the fact that there's been a lot of new data items included in, you know, informs us or, you know, tells us that... It's changing. It's it's open to expansion, and and mm. and so I think you know that's got to be a good thing, isn't it? And of course, it happened during lockdown when more people had time to sit. What am I going to do? I might as well fill in this form because I'm twiddling my thumbs. <laughs> it had a higher participation rate than previously. Said that well, something. and being on top to do it online, I yeah. think that was a good one too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Prudence, thank you very much. That was fascinating. Right, the census. We'll come back to that in uh, another five years' time. Mm. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Oh, my goodness. Triple um, R listeners are a wonderful bunch. We've had a stack of te- texts coming in. Thank you so much for those. We do love getting them. Uh, one of the questions was referring back to Medical Pantry, which we talked about earlier in the show. Uh, the absolutely gorgeous Marty Nguyen talking about his work <laughs> as an anaesthetist but also on the sidelines uh, setting up and helping run this charity called Medical Pantry. Asking where the warehouse is for that. I can't tell you exactly where the warehouse is. All I can tell you is that if you jump online uh, to medicalpantry.org uh, I'm sure you will find it listed there we'll try and pop it up on our on the website uh, uh, on the triple r uh, with a link but uh, more importantly go onto that uh, website and then uh, put your hand up to volunteer and maybe splash some cash as well um, so thank you for that um, also some l- lovely sensible questions and inquiries um, Someone asking about uh, whether we could do a show on thyroid disease at some point. I think that's a really good topic. Uh, what do you reckon, panel BC? Yeah, absolutely. I actually think uh, that text was suggesting that hyperthyroidism was one of the conditions that maybe wasn't captured. It may have been in that grab bag of not stated. Oh, okay. Well, it's a good question. I think hyperthyroidism is sufficiently uncommon, but it doesn't count right. for too many of the okay. two million. But yeah. thyroid disorder of one kind or another might be. Anyway, yeah. um, look, thank you as always for your text message. It is, it is really wonderful. Wonderful to hear from you. It's time for us to think about wrapping up, and it's really just time for us to say a huge thank you to our in-studio guest, Marty Nguyen, to the multi-talented Dr. Nick Team Prudence Steer, panel beater. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast, so you can listen to us on the road, in the air, or in the bath. Hi. 
This is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.